Well, good morning. It's good to see you today. If you are watching this video on Sunday morning, it's because I did not get back from St. George in time to be able to be here to preach to you live. Obviously, I don't like this kind of format. I would much rather be with you and preach live, but uh, uh, Howard Johnson's funeral was on Saturday in St. George at 11. And Amy and I were going to endeavor as much as possible to be here with you. But if my strength waned and I didn't make it back, I wanted to have a backup plan. And so I went ahead and recorded the sermon live, or excuse me, not live, recorded the sermon on Thursday just for a backup plan. Pastor Matt, of course, took the youth group this weekend and had to go up to Cody uh, where they were going on an outing with the youth group. Therefore, he wasn't going to be here, and so I couldn't rely on him as a backup. So you just got to put up with a sermon on a video feed, and that's what we'll do for the day. And I apologize again. Um, Lord willing, we'll see you next Sunday. I, I know Keith carried through the service, and we had uh, help with singing this morning. My brother Andrew uh led the music, and I thank him for doing that. And so, all things being equal, this is the format we're going to use today. We're going to be in the book of Romans. You can take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans and chapter 9. I really don't like preaching into a camera because it feels like I'm so close. Um, and so, as you watch this on the screen, you're going to feel like you're in my private space today. And so I apologize for that, but here we go. We're just going to look together into the Word. We're going to continue right along with what we've been studying in the book of Romans and in chapter 9. As we've been going through the book of Romans, we've been talking about the sovereignty of God in salvation. That was set specifically into the context of Israel's rejection of their Messiah. We have talked about that extensively. We got through the end of chapter 9 last week. Today we're going to begin into chapter 10. And you will notice with me, as we go from chapter 9 and into chapter 10, there's this big shift that happens. In chapter 9, the message is almost in entirety about God's sovereignty in electing. Unconditional election, we talked about unconditional election. We talked about God's irresistible grace in saving. We talked about God's prerogative in bestowing mercy. But as we shift into chapter 10, he is going to begin to put emphasis on you and I's response. Faith. He does so at the end of this chapter, the end of chapter 9, when he laid out that contrast between those who stumble at the stumbling stone and those who receive Jesus and are never put to shame. We also see in this text the repeated emphasis on righteousness. Man's righteousness or God's righteousness. As we read these verses together, I want you to notice this focus. The Jews who did not 
attained to righteousness, nevertheless had pursued self-righteousness. They had pursued righteousness. The Gentiles, on the other hand, were not pursuing righteousness, but they attained to it. Why? Because of faith. I want you to notice in this text this contrast. Many times when we preach, when we teach, when we study the scripture, we talk about self-righteousness. We talk about how self-righteousness sets us up for eternal condemnation. That is really at the heart of this message. The heart of this message is for us to focus on the reality that all of our righteous deeds are merely filthy, polluted rags. In order to be saved, we must be clothed in the imputed righteousness of Christ our Savior. The Jews were not willing to do so. When I use the word the Jews, I am talking about the nation at large. The mass of the nation, not the remnant that God would save, but the mass of the nation were unwilling to turn to Christ and to receive his righteousness. Instead, they wanted to establish their own righteousness. And this sets them up to stumble at the stumbling stone. Let's notice the text and then we'll pray. What I want to do is begin reading in chapter 9, and we're going to begin reading in verse 30. And we're going to continue down to chapter 10, verse 4. As I read these verses, like I do often, I'm going to make some comments on them just to save us time in the message. And so we'll put some explanation into the reading of the text. Notice what he says, chapter 930. What shall we say then? He begins with a question. What is the question? It is to be a concluding question to all the things that we talked about in chapter 9 that we found out about the sovereignty of God. What should we say to these things? This is what we say. That Gentiles, all the nations, all the nations who were not pursuing righteousness, attained it. That is a righteousness by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, never succeeded in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as it were, they were pursuing that righteousness based upon their works. And so, he quotes from Isaiah, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock that causes offense. 
and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. 10 verse 1. In response to this teaching on the sovereignty of God, what does Paul do? How does Paul respond? Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer, my prayer, my prayer to God, when I come into the understanding of the unshakable sovereignty of God, I realize that there is nothing in man that can allow him or enable him to save himself. He is dead in trespasses and sin. And only God can regenerate and only God can save him. And so what do I do? Try to manipulate people? In order to cause them to believe? No, that's not going to work. The only thing that I can do, the only thing that I must do, is to look to that sovereign Lord in prayer and to bring up those that I love, those that I know, those that I am sharing the gospel with, those that God is putting a burden on my heart for, to pray for them unceasingly. And so he says, brothers, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear witness of them, he says, that they have a zeal for God. He is talking about the Jewish people. He is talking about his kindred according to the flesh, and he is saying of those of his nationality, they have a zeal for God. But it is not according to knowledge. That is an interesting word, epigenosis. It does not just speak of a superficial knowledge. It speaks of a deeper knowledge. Paul prays in the book of Ephesians that God would open the eyes of our understanding and give us this deeper knowledge. This is a spiritual knowledge. It is a knowledge that is imparted by the Holy Spirit. It's not just a head knowledge. Anybody can have a knowledge of the Bible. Anybody can read the Bible and know it front to back. And yet really never know it. Never really know its meaning. Never really understand and ascertain its true purpose. And so these Jews, these Pharisees, have a deep knowledge missing. They have a lot of knowledge. They have a lot of head knowledge. They know the Bible well. Jesus even says of them in the Gospel of John, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, but you are not willing to come to me. And he says there, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but they testify of me. And you are not willing to come to me. And so, Paul says to them, they have a zeal for God, but it is not according to a deep spiritual knowledge that only the Holy Spirit can impart. For they are ignorant of the righteousness of God. 
They are ignorant of the righteousness of God and they are seeking to go about and establish their own. And so they will not submit to God's righteousness. <clears throat> for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's some things I want to make note of here as we begin. First one being this. At the very beginning of our study of the book of Romans, in chapter 1, verse 16, we looked at the basic purpose of the book in a nutshell when Paul said in Romans chapter 1, 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, in other in chronological time sequence, it went to the Jewish people first. To the Jew first. And also to the Greek. And then he says this of the gospel. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. Exactly what we see in these verses. Same themes. Righteousness, faith. The Jews, the Gentiles, that contrast, all those things are tied up in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, even the word shame. He who believes on him will never be put to shame. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God, not of man, of God, to save. And in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Not the righteousness of man. The gospel is not about showing off my righteousness, my inherent righteousness, although ultimately it makes me righteous, first of all by imputation, the imputation of Christ's righteousness to my account, so I am made righteous, and then he is working out that righteousness in my sanctification. It is ultimately done in my glorification when I am brought into God's presence and all the vestiges of sin nature that I now have are gone. And ultimately I am made righteous in totality. So that which I now have in position becomes fully mine in practice when I am glorified. And so the gospel is about God's righteousness. The Jews wanted to make it about their righteousness. The Jews wanted to be good, but they didn't really want God. They also didn't really want to come to terms with their own lack of righteousness and unrighteousness. 
this message I titled Filthy Rags. Takes me back to the book of Isaiah in chapter 64. In Isaiah in chapter 64, the prophet Isaiah is recording for us a message from God. And he says there, for we all have become as an unclean thing. And all our righteous deeds are like filthy rags, or as it says in the ESV, like a polluted garment, polluted rags. Unclean. Think of the note here. Think with me, Isaiah 64, verse 6. He says, for we all have become as an unclean thing. That word unclean obviously is helping us think. Ceremonial law. Laws of clean and unclean. And certain things were clean, certain things were unclean to the Jewish people. And, and, and the writer of the book of Isaiah, Isaiah himself, is saying, for we all have become as an unclean thing. You couldn't go into the temple, you couldn't go into the presence of God as an unclean person. A leper could not go to the synagogue, to the temple, could not participate in the worship of God. Why? Because he was unclean. He says, we all have become as an unclean thing. We all have become as a polluted garment, a garment that is stained. It's an interesting word in the Hebrew language. It literally refers to a garment or a rag that has been soiled by the natural cycle of a woman's body. And he says all of our righteous deeds are like a dirty garment. You know, we all have rags that we use. We, we use a rag to wipe up the floor. We use a rag to clean our hands when we're greasing a bale. We're changing the oil on a truck. We use a rag to clean up the floor when something is spilt. And after we've cleaned up the mess, the rag is then polluted. It has that on it that we were cleaning up. It needs to be washed because it is now regarded unclean. And the Lord is telling us that all of our righteous deeds, all of our attempts to please God by keeping his law, by doing good things, by helping the little old lady across the street, by tithing, whatever the case may be, that all of our righteous deeds are nevertheless polluted. Why? Because as we've already studied in the book of Romans, chapter 5, it was by one man's sin 
that death entered the world. And by that sin, all were made unrighteous. So we are born with a polluted nature. And that polluted nature is stained with sin. And our mere acts of righteousness don't wash the stain away. We are like polluted garments. The Jews didn't understand that. The Jews didn't really see that. They saw themselves as being able to keep the righteousness of the law. Remember the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus and he asks him a question. He says, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, you read the law. What does it say to you? The man says, all these things I've kept from my youth. Jesus says to him, go. Sell all your goods and give the receipts to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And the man went away. Very sorrowful. Why? Because he had a covetous heart. His things were so important to him. God wasn't saying to him that you can somehow buy eternal life by giving all your stuff away. Jesus was just pointing out to the man that he had a covetous heart. That he loved things more than he loved God. That the keeping of the law and the standards of righteousness and the law are not just the mere external acts that we do. No, it goes down into the core of our nature. So this all has to do with righteousness. Now, it's very important we understand something. This idea of imputed righteousness and the righteousness of Christ he says here at the end of these verses in chapter 10, verse 4, he says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. To all who believe. What, do we, what does he mean by this? Uh, what he's saying is this. <clears throat> Christ's righteousness being attained only by faith is not a new thing to the New Testament. No, it was in the Old Testament as well, and it was embedded in the law. It was foreshadowing the substance which is Christ, and yet the Jews missed it. But it's all through it. Same gospel, same message of salvation. The Old Testament saint was saved the same way the New Testament saint is saved, just a different orientation in the Old Testament. The believer looked forward to the cross in faith that Christ would supply righteousness where he had none. And it was all foreshadowed in the sacrificial system and all the things in the law. But the Old Testament saint believed in God. The New Testament saint, in the same way, looked back to the cross and what Christ did to supply our righteousness, to forgive our sin, same gospel. For instance, in the book of Jeremiah, in two places, 
God tells us in that book, in chapter 23 and chapter 33, that it is the Lord who is our righteousness. It is the Lord who is our righteousness. We are not righteous. We need a righteousness imputed to us because we are not righteous. The Lord is our righteousness. That was in the Old Testament. But they missed it. They read the Old Testament, but they didn't have that knowledge he talked about here. They were ignorant of it. And being ignorant of it, they went around trying to establish their own righteousness. And we all point the finger at the Jews in the Old Testament with the Jews in the New Testament who rejected Jesus. And yet the same thing happens in churches in America and around the world today. Where people just miss the message that's there. And they go around and try to establish their own righteousness by doing good things, by going to church, by reading the Bible. And all those things are good. But if the motive in doing them is to earn God's favor, somehow thinking that by doing these things, I am doing something that is going to cause God to look favorably upon me because of the righteous deed that I have done, then I missed the end of the law. The goal of the law, the goal of the law was Christ our righteousness. And being ignorant of that, we go around and try to establish our own. My friend, the problem in the Old Testament is as much a problem today, for there are so many who in self-righteousness miss the true message of the cross. That Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. We must trust him. We must believe him. There are two places I want to go as I bring the message together this morning. The first one is I want to go back to last week. The other one is I want to go to the passage that was read to you today for the scripture reading. Because the verses that was read today for the scripture reading exactly mirrors what Paul is saying here. Before we look at that, I want you to go back with me to the book of Matthew. Now, I want you to go back with me to Matthew chapter 21. Matthew chapter 21. <clears throat> Last week, we talked about the stone that causes men to stumble. The stone that causes men to stumble and to offend. And I read to you from Matthew chapter 21, some words that Jesus said to the Jews of his day who were rejecting him. They were the religious leaders of the nation. He likens them to tenants of a vineyard who aren't paying their landlord the money that is due him. He asked them a question. When the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants who are not paying? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death, and he will give the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruit in their seasons. 
Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you. It will be given to a people producing its fruits. We just read of that in chapter 9 and chapter 10. And then he says this. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And we looked at that dichotomy that either we fall upon the stone and are broken by this stone, we fall upon him in faith and trust and we are broken by him, or he falls upon us and he crushes us. As in Daniel chapter 2, when all the kingdoms of men are crushed by this stone that is cut out without hands and crushes the kingdoms of men. Whoever falls on this stone will be broken. I talked about that last week. And I felt like I didn't go deep enough in that for a minute last week, and I want to go back and say this. I talked to us last week about the fact that every one of us will either be broken by Christ, that we might be healed by him, or he will crush us to powder in eternal ruin. But every individual, every one of us will face him in that way. He will either break us in order to heal us by his grace, or he will crush us. And he who believes on him will not be put to shame. And I felt like I didn't do justice to that for a minute because I didn't go far enough with it. Because what I want us to think about is this reality. Yes, he breaks us. He works in our life where he breaks us of our sin, of our self-reliance, our self-righteousness, so that we come to him in trust and faith. He breaks us. But he does so graciously that he might heal us. And I don't feel like I brought that out well enough. He's kind. He's gracious. His desire for us is to heal us of our brokenness. We are broken by sin. We are broken in sin. And that sin God uses in a breaking process that he might bring us to wholeness. And I want you to go with me to Matthew chapter 12 for a minute. In Matthew chapter 12, Jesus is interacting with the Jews of his day who were offended at him. We talked about this last week, this idea of offense. He's a stone that he laid in Zion, a stone of stumbling. A rock of offense. And so the Jews are offended at him. Because on the Sabbath day, he heals a man. And his disciples are plucking the heads of grain. And we talked about those stories last week. 
And it tells us in verse 14 of chapter 12 that the Pharisees went out and they conspire against him to destroy him. And it tells us here, Jesus is aware of this. He withdrew from there and many followed him. He healed them all. He ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen. My beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel out loud or cry in the streets. What does he say here? A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench. On the one hand, the Lord is dealing with the Jewish leaders of his day who are very self-righteous. And he deals with them with a firm hand. And they stumble at him. They take offense at him. And yet the people who have been broken come to him and he heals them all. These are those who are the bruised reeds and the smoldering wicks. Two things are being pictured there that are not part of our ordinary life. So let me explain a smoldering wick. Now, maybe you ladies have, just like on the shelf behind me, an oil lamp. And in that oil lamp, there's a wick. And that wick has to descend down into the oil and to soak the oil up in order to burn properly. And if it is not saturated with oil, the wick doesn't burn properly. It just maybe smolders and is very smoky. But it doesn't give you light. And here he's picturing a wick, a life, that is just putting out a lot of smoke. Nobody likes smoke. <laughs> you know, you always say around a campfire, smoke follows beauty, right? Well, wherever you go, no matter how ugly you are like me, the smoke always seems to follow you. And nobody likes to sit in the smoke. It irritates your eyes and it's just unpleasant. But we all like light. And yet God says here, this wick that is just smoking, it's not putting out any light. He's not going to put it out. He's not going to quench it. No, he's going to saturate it in oil. He's going to nurse it along so that it can produce light. He's going to care for it. He's going to nurture it. A bruised reed. What's a reed here? You know, I was trying to think, what's a reed? So I do a little thinking. Of it. What is a reed? You know, when I think of a reed, I'm thinking about something growing out in the pond. I'm thinking maybe of a cattail or Something along that line that's just a reed 
the way we think of it. Maybe you play the flute and you're thinking of a reed like a woodwind instrument. No, I guess that wouldn't be the flute. That'd be the clarinet. Maybe that's what you're thinking of with a reed. That's not what he's talking about here. The word is a cane. It's a Greek word, a cane. And literally, this thing that he is talking about here was not exactly by no means like this, but we maybe think of a bamboo. That, that is rigid and hard when it's dried, and it's hollow on the inside, it's a shaft. And literally, this plant that grew in Palestine, this cane, this reed, was used as a walking stick, as a cane. It was also used because it was very straight and rigid. It's what they used to make arrows. Because it was hollow, it's what they used to make flutes. And so it was used as an arrow, as a walking stick upon which you could lean, as a musical instrument to produce beautiful music, or in Jesus' case, the soldiers used it to beat him. He was beaten with a reed or a cane. And when he hung upon a cross, they took a reed or a cane and they put a sponge on it and they soaked it on vinegar and they lifted it to him as he's hanging it on the cross so that he could speak. They wet his mouth. A bruised reed. In other words, he's talking about a reed that has a defect in it, because it has a defect in it, it's not going to make a good arrow. Because it has a defect in it, because it's got a bruise, you would never lean on it and use it as a walking stick. You wouldn't want to use it as a cane, because it's got a bruise in it, a defect in it. You wouldn't want to use it for a musical instrument. And so what would we do? We would reject it. We would set it aside. We would break it and throw it away. And yet our Savior says of us, the bruised reed, he doesn't snap and discard. No, the person who is bruised, who is broken, The, the, the person who is like the smoking wick, in grace he heals. Why? Because that is the person that is willing to look to him in simple childlike faith, realizing that there is nothing inherent within him to commend him to God. And he is the one who does not stumble over the stumbling stone. No, he is the one who, because he believes, is never put to shame. Having said that, Philippians chapter 3 gives us Paul's own personal story. The reason this is so powerful to us is because in Philippians chapter 3, when Paul shares his own journey 
we have the story of a rank legalist who was completely self-righteous as a Pharisee and as a Hebrew. And yet, one who Paul says of himself was the chief of sinners because of the way he was persecuting Christians. He meets Jesus on the Damascus Road and all of his self-righteousness is washed away. In verse 4, he says this, Philippians 3, Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I weigh more. I was circumcised on the eighth day, according to the law. Excuse me, predates the law back to the Abrahamic covenant. Was it the people of Israel? I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, that tribe that had the first king, the King Saul. He knew his lineage. I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews as to the law. A Pharisee. As to zeal. A persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law. Blameless. But whatever gain I had. I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed. Notice this. I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. And it is for her, his sake that I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as, and the old King James says it, dung, rubbish. He says, I, I, I lost all these things, and I count it, I evaluate it as horse pucky in order that I may gain Christ to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Filthy rags. All our righteous deeds and all our attempts at righteousness are but filthy garbage regarded as dung. And Paul says all those things I evaluate that way in order that I may gain Christ. Let me just speak to you from the heart for a minute. Only God knows your heart. I don't. Only God knows exactly what we are trusting in and who we are trusting in. And as you look at your life this morning, are you trusting in Christ and Christ alone? Or in some way, are you thinking that the deeds that you do and the life that you've lived is somehow going to commend you to God. Brethren, 
my heart's desire and prayer for you is that you may be saved. And in order to be saved, you must renounce all and trust in Christ. Let us pray. Father, as we close this morning, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it is truth. I pray that you would take this word, that you would penetrate the heart of some person. I pray for that person who is here, who is like the bruised reed and the smoking flax. Oh, Lord, help them to see your gentleness and your goodness. To trust in you and you alone. Dismiss us with your love. In Jesus' name, amen. It's been good to be with you this morning, even though I'm not with you live. Um, make sure you greet each other. And as you leave today, make sure that you look someone else in the eye and just tell them you were glad to see them today. And that as we are dismissed with Christ's love, I pray that you will you'll know for sure that your sins are forgiven and you have a home in heaven. And so go with Christ. Have a great week. See you next week, Lord.